Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com for weekly updates about my podcasts, events, and more. Also, follow me on Instagram at zibbyowens and also at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. And finally, join my virtual book club called Zibby's Virtual Book Club, which meets every other Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time until 3 p.m. and features half an hour of book club discussion, followed by 30 minutes of Q&A with the author whose book we've just discussed. You can sign up on my website, zibbyowens.com, under the virtual book club section, or even on Instagram under the link in my bio. I hope you'll find me in all these different channels and enjoy this podcast. Today's episode has been sponsored by Faraday. Faraday is basically my favorite clothing store that exists. I thought I was finding this undiscovered gem in a tiny little mall in California and Palisades Village. Anyway, I went into Faraday one day and like freaked out and I've been following them ever since. Um, I love their clothes and so does my husband, Kyle. And you can enter code Zibby, Z-I-B-B-Y and get 25% off on their website, FaradayBrand.com. F-A-H-E-R-T-Y-B-R-A-N-D.com. I kind of hate to tell you all about Faraday because <laughs> I kind of liked being in the know and like having my own secret stash of clothes, but it's amazing and you will love them, especially their new cozy fall sweaters, which I've been wearing on Instagram and um, their pants, which have like the maternity band type thing up top and fit everybody. Uh, their shirt dresses, their shirt slash jackets for guys. Anyway, they're amazing. Enter code Zibby, get 25% off. I have done this now a couple of times and really have to stop. So anyway, please order. Brian Washington's novel, his first novel, by the way, called Memorial, was just announced as the GMA November book club pick, which is huge. So congratulations to Brian for that. Brian is a writer from Houston, and his fiction and essays have appeared in the New York Times, the New York Times Magazine, the New Yorker, the New York Times Style Magazine, and many others. He's a National Book Foundation 5 Under 35 winner, a New York Public Library Young Lions Award recipient, an Ernest J. Gaines Award recipient, and an international Dylan Thomas Prize recipient. Wait, there's more. A Lambda Literary Award recipient, a Penn Robert W. Bingham Prize finalist, a National Book Critics Circle John Leonard Prize finalist, and the recipient of an O. Henry Award. <laughs> so if that's not enough, Memorial was already nominated for the Center for Fiction's 2020 First Novel Book Prize, and his first book lot was published by Riverhead. Congrats to Brian for the GMA Book Club pick announcement. Welcome, Brian. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Zoe. Congratulations on Memorial, your debut novel. I know you already have a lot, which was a collection of stories, but now your debut novel, making a big, big, big splash in the world. Congratulations. Yeah, <laughs> thanks so much. It's all very, you know, surreal. You know, I feel like anytime someone's interested in the thing that you're trying to do, it's deeply surreal. So this has been- I bet. Very, yeah, it's just, yeah, massively surreal, but very grateful. And I heard from your publicist that you are the next GMA book club pick, which I am so thrilled about. That's amazing. Yeah, it, it's it, that comment about things being surreal. Like it, it, it would have been surreal just like to have the book come out. So to see it like on that scale on that platform, it's, it's just been really, you can only be like grateful because it's just such an unexpected thing. Oh my gosh. Well, I'm almost sorry I'm not talking to you after because I would have wanted to hear what it was like to have your book, you know, ah. in Times Square and all the rest. But, you know, just like DM me or something. Cause, you yeah, know, yeah, you yeah, I'll reach out. Yeah, yeah, I'll reach out. Yeah. <laughs> well, aside from the success of your endeavors, let's talk about 
your actual endeavors and all of your writing. And I read so many of your amazing essays in all sorts of different publications like BuzzFeed and the New York Times and just everywhere, New Yorker, fiction, nonfiction, all your stories. Let's start with like your roots going back to Jamaica. Can we talk about that a little bit? Because you wrote a few really beautiful pieces about that and sort of having different cultures in different countries and going back and everybody clapping on the plane on the way to Jamaica, which by the way, is one of my like favorite places in the world. So I think that's why I want to talk about him. Yeah. Anytime that you land, <laughs> it's, yeah, you it's just like the best thing that's ever happened to me. It's one of the only, only places we regularly travel to growing up. And I just thought that's what you did on planes. Oh <laughs> yes, my God. Can, can you imagine? Yeah. I mean, we should be, and I feel like that's all we should do on planes. Like it's a miracle. Yeah. We landed in a lot of ways. Like you're in the sky. In fact, until... Until I read what you wrote, it didn't even occur to me it was only there. And then I had to go back to my head and think, no way. Was it really only to Jamaica? So anyway, yeah. you taught me something about my own life. Yeah, when you fly to New York, no one is, no one seems terribly excited to be there. It's just no. like, oh, let's get off the plane immediately. Uh, yeah, I was born in uh, Kentucky, uh, but my mom's Jamaican. So I, pretty early on, I had the opportunity to go like back a handful of times. So I think the with every piece that I've written in some capacity, a lot of it has just come down to like the generosity of the editors that I've been able to work with because I've just been able to work with like a lot of folks who are so great at their jobs, you know, like Nicole Chung um, over at Catapult and Rachel Sanders who used to be at uh, BuzzFeed and now Rachel Aaron's at the New Yorker. So they've just been super receptive to me writing about a lot of different stuff and not really siloing me into one particular beat. So it's made for a lot of opportunities to just sort of spread myself around as far as interests are concerned. Well, I feel like this sort of theme of travel and negotiating sort of different relationships is very present in Memorial in many ways, but, and also the search for family and what that really means and, and all of that. So tell me a little more about, well, maybe you could start by telling people who don't know what Memorial is about, what it's about and, and how you end up writing that novel. Yeah. So I think it really has depended on like who I'm talking to, because sometimes I'll call it a case like a tragedy. I've called it like a lowercase love story. My editor started saying like a rom-com with teeth like a few months ago and I actually really like that so it just it really just does depend on like what headspace I'm in and I just like use one of them but I think that at its sort of base it's like it's a love story like I wanted to write a love story about characters that I wanted to read about that I hadn't seen on the page and I wanted it to be a love story featuring characters and communities that were in conversation with one another as opposed to a reaction to trauma or a reaction to the obstacles whether infrastructural or personal that they may have been facing. So trying to write a love story that allowed room for each partner to grow into both that relationship, but also the relationships around them and themselves was the overarching goal. And it started as a short story that I wrote for a zine. And I was in the middle of writing a, another project that I will never turn back to. And I kept turning back to the short story because it was easier to write partly, but also because it, was one that I wanted to see the ending of. And friends would tell me like, hey, like that's 
actually a big clue that you need to just do that. And I was like, no, 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 like, no one would read this. Like, it's not marketable. And I pitched it to my agent and she was super receptive, but I was still a bit tentative. And then I pitched it to my editor, Laura Percy Seppi, and she was super receptive when she really didn't have to be. So at that point, I sat down and really seriously started drafting it. And it took about three years or so in about 11-ish drafts or so. So it was a little bit of work trying to get it to come together and trying to get the different threads in the place that I wanted them to be. But really, it was just reaching toward the sort of thing that I wanted to read and the sort of book that I thought that I might enjoy if it existed that got me to finish it. Wow. Well, your writing style is is very unique and rough around the edges is not, and I don't mean that in a bad way, like maybe raw, maybe raw around the edges. It's just so, I, I used to have a good vocabulary and today it's failing me. And now I feel like I insulted you, which I obviously did not mean to do. No, rough around, around the edges, around the edges. is like amazing. <laughs> I just mean, it's just so raw. It's just, I don't know how else to say it. Like bold, like the scenes, you don't mess around with words you don't need and you don't like use flowery language that has no use and you just say it, but you, it's in such a sparse way. That's like even more powerful, especially the dialogue and your use of punctuation. And I don't know. I was just, I was really into it. Is all, <laughs> no, I so appreciate that. Like I'm really interested in the silences between characters and the sort of spaces between what characters say to one another and also the spaces between like what's actually said by someone and what they understand and what they internalize and how the context in which they're in when they hear the thing can impact what they actually take with them and how in that context changes perhaps their memory or their internalization of the thing that they heard could change as well. So really playing with the space between what's said and what's understood is always sort of in the back of my head, but also like, I'm hyper-conscious of accessibility when it comes to language. And that might have to do with the fact that, like, I wasn't the most prodigious reader, like, growing up. So what's most impressive to me or, like, what's really most amazing to me, like, as far as, like, fiction is concerned, is folks who use the simplicity of language in order to get, like, five, six, seven, eight, nine different themes across at the same time. So really striving for that is important to me generally, but also for Memorial too. Oh, good. Okay, great. Good. You tried to do that. Oh. It's awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it was, it, was, it was a little bit intentional. So it's been nice to hear like, okay, you're doing this. I don't know. Like, I feel like you tried to do a thing and then like, it's like, did I do the thing? And then other people tell you like, oh, okay, like you did the thing. And I'm like, okay, yeah, talk, I can, I can talk about it thing. now. <laughs> <laughs> you did the thing. That's awesome. Wait, go back to not being a big reader growing up. What? So did you not like to read at all? Were you a late reader? Did you just tell me about your reading in childhood? Yeah. And maybe just your childhood, like what you said you grew up in Kentucky, but now you're in Houston. What happened in between? Like, where'd you go? And tell yeah. me about growing up. Yes. I mean, we only have a load of time. This is going to be... No. I'm like, oh, my God. Story. Like, who are you? Yeah. I, yeah, I was, <laughs> was born in Kentucky, moved to Texas when I was like three or so, and we, our first, the first house we lived in was like just outside of Houston proper. And it was a very white neighborhood, like a very white subdivision, but the street itself was like deeply diverse. And my parents' friends and like their cohort of folks who moved to that area at the same time was deeply diverse. So I was really fortunate to be privy to like a lot 
of different folks coming from a lot of different communities, cooking a number of different cuisines. And I think that like my earliest reading ventures were cookbooks, partly because the fact that my parents worked. So like if I wanted to eat, like I have to cook. (laughs) I didn't know how to do that. So, you know, really just like bugging friends and like bugging friends as parents and just like reading cookbooks was like how I passed my time pretty early on. And I don't know. I was, I did like all of like the, the Texas sport things. Like I was really into like football for a, a time. And then I was like, no longer, like once I stopped playing football, it was like, it like left my brain and like it just entirely what evaporated. Position did, uh, what I, position did you play? I played fullback. Yeah. I played, I played fullback, which was like an experience. And like, I was pretty slow. So it really didn't make much sense structurally <laughs> for me to be doing that. But what I really fell into like narratively was film. So I think that I was, it's it's a boon now and it's something that I can appreciate now, but I watched a lot of foreign film or foreign from the States in either case. So the ways in which you could tell a story, both structurally and also narratively, and the kinds of stories that you could tell always seemed really wide open to me because I was just, you know, we had like a local blockbuster and they had like a bunch of different, you know, they had like everything. Like, Travel the world, a blockbuster. So like a lot of the, a lot of my early narrative education was through film. And then I went to the University of Houston for undergrad and I took a class with a guy named Matt Johnson. And he was just incredibly generous with his time and like deeply kind. I was like what I was trying to do on the page. And it was encouragement to just keep going. So it was really fortuitous to meet uh, him. And then I did an MFA after undergrad and I met uh, Joanna Leake, who was also deeply generous with her time and deeply encouraging. So being really lucky to meet folks who were into what I was trying to do and just receptive to it. Amazing. And what do you think, like, why didn't you give up? Like what made you keep going? This is like the thing I'm always most curious about, like 11 drafts of Memorial and why not just put it aside? What, what drove you to keep working on it? And, you know, I've gotten to think a lot about it now. And at this point, like, it seems like a bit much. <laughs> because, like, like, when I wrote Memorial, like, it wasn't a book that I wrote on contracts. So, like, if I hadn't finished it, then, like, no one would have cared because okay. there was no yes. financial okay. obligation one way or the other, you know? <laughs> but I really wanted to see how it would end. And I was teaching... ESL at the time, which is a job that I loved. And, you know, I would teach and then I would like write on the weekends or write during lunch. Or if I had like a day off, I would like go to like the coffee shop and just like sort of work on it because it was just, I just wanted to see how it would end. And for the longest time, like I thought that, you know, I would finish an iteration of it and then I would show it to my friends and then they would read it or not read it and then that would you know, be a story of memorial and I was like quite all right with that like I was quite happy with it so really just wanting to see what a narrative where there isn't really like a clear antagonist and where there are characters that are you know, hopefully approaching one another from a place of love and like from a place of growth could end up and like what that would look like was really, it wasn't as really important to me. So just trying to see like if it was a thing that I could do was the driver in a lot of ways. Interesting. So was there anything in your life that happened that particularly I'm referring to the, the not especially mother-in-law, but the mother-in-law-ish person coming to stay from Tokyo and, you know, the 
boyfriend like jetting off and like leaving the new I'm not explaining this well leaving the new person <laughs> there <laughs> to like have to deal with his mother you know it'd be like I start dating someone and I'm like see ya you hang out with my mom like that would not fly probably even now that I'm married so what inspired that where did that piece of it come from you know I really that scenario arrived for me like intact and there isn't really a one-to-one correlation between any of the characters or like any of their arcs and things that I've experienced. I think like the most tangible one might be that like I worked at an aftercare place for like five years and it was a job that I really loved. But aside from that, like there's not a lot where you could draw a direct line. But at the same time, like I wanted to read something featuring the kinds of relationships that I'd had, the kind of relationships that my friends had had, trying to put that on the page was really important to me. And I knew that if I wanted to write a story in which the ending was open for the characters, like not necessarily like structurally open, but open as far as a possibility for them, I would need to at least create like a stable foundation in the intro, like a sort of like bait and switch. Like you think you're gonna read a narrative about one particular thing, like a sort of very, strange meet cute and then it becomes something else or it becomes many different things so i was really lucky in that that scenario arrived mostly intact from the very outset but at the same time i think that was like one of the very few things about the book that like from the beginning like i knew that okay like this will probably stay everything else like changed yeah. a handful <laughs> of times at least you know over the course of writing it Well, I was struck in one of your essays about the experience with your uncle in Jamaica, where you saw a group of of gay men around a boat and you were like, oh, look, great. And before you knew it, your uncle was like hurling stones at them and you were just standing there and then you all just paddled off or something like that and left the men. And you were like, well, I'm not coming out to this crew. (laughs) Forget that. How then does everybody in your, did everybody in your family then react to this book, which is very open and, you know, graphic. If I, I don't know if that's the right word, but very just, you know, I guess graphic as many relationship stories, you know, many sort of sexual scenes are no matter what, but you're right in that it doesn't happen as often in literature between two men. And what does your family think about that? You know, the family members that I have that I know have read it have been overwhelmingly positive. I gave a galley of it to my mom once I had like a solidified galley back in December and she would send like updates every few weeks, just sort of like UP USPS. Like I did like telling me like, okay, like it's here right now. It's like, okay, it's like here right now. It's like here, like not like whether they liked it or not, or like whether they finished, just like telling me like, okay, like, this, this page okay right, like yeah. the galley is in Atlanta, right? Like, okay, like that galley is like in New York. And like, this is the person who has, and everyone, like everyone that I've heard from, you know, this could absolutely change has, been just like really supportive of the story and really you know just like overwhelmingly positive toward what I was trying to do which is also like I feel like if everyone is positive that also makes me a bit wary because like okay what am am I not seeing but I think it you know a lot of that you know grateful for it but it also like comes back to this idea of like what I wanted to try to do with the book is like not operate in binaries and not silo characters into archetypes that don't give them room to change or room to grow or room to expand their language 
right? Or to silo them into like one position or another because they may not have the language or the lexicon to have the conversations that the folks around them, whether it's family, whether it's lovers, whether it's friends, want them to have. And just putting every character in a position to be able to like move toward goodness. So, so far, everyone has been like overwhelmingly supportive, which is like also a bit concerning. Like I'm waiting for like the other shoe to fall. It's just like, it's very strange. Yeah. Yeah. Keeping uh, holding your breath. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, well, not not too long. As soon as I say this, like I'm getting in text. Like so-and-so. Yeah. Like, Like, oh, good. I was waiting for that one. Exactly. Confirmed. So are you working on anything new now? Yeah. So I have like a project that I'm trying to get into shape and I don't know if it'll stick or if it's just sort of like a hiccup and then it'll go away but like the biggest thing on the horizon is that i'm adapting the series for television a24 is producing it and scott rudin is or rather rudin productions is assisting in the production and a big thing for me during the option process was that like if it was going to end up on screen i wanted to be a person to adapt it because it just seemed like a really cool opportunity for one thing but also there was like a certain way that i wanted it done or a certain way that i wanted to see it so i'm just really fortunate that a24 was super receptive to that and they're such great folks and the root production folks are such great folks so trying to figure out what the iteration on screen will look like will probably keep me busy for a while i would think yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah just a little bit. i mean yeah. that sounds like a big job to do so yeah <laughs> yeah yeah it's a yeah it'll be it'll be an undertaking but i'm working with really cool folks and i think everyone's approaching it from the standpoint of you know we just want to make like a cool thing like a really like a really yeah, solid yeah, thing cool. and that's the uh, you know I, I think it'll be a good experience i didn't mean job in a negative way i meant you know an exciting <laughs> oh yeah. no it is work like it is certainly wonderful work, project just, like i know like i'm in the midst of like all this work so I'm like oh my god like more work but i'm, I'm trying to <laughs> i have to cast like a positive light on like the amount of work it is because you know otherwise it would be untenable but yeah <laughs> well i feel like it actually might be easier than most to adapt just because i feel like your scenes are so visual like i can see it all like the taxi or whatever the car pulling up to the curb at the airport and the kitchen scene with you know what waking up late and having the mother-in-law's character be there like they're just so i see it i don't know if that's what's in your head but like i have a clear vision of those scenes yeah so. yeah when i'm writing like i'm I don't know, I just pull a lot from film because so many of my narrative reference points and so many of like my structural reference points are from things that I've seen. So trying to paint as clear a picture of the world and of the characters and of their interactions as possible is really important to me and something that I really set out to do. And that probably comes through more in like the editing process, like once the story is actually there, trying to hone it and cut away all of the unnecessary bits so that you just have story and you have the reader and they're able to ideally like have a relationship with that story and it becomes their own. 
I feel like I have to use what you keep referring to as, what do you say, like your narrative creative process or something through film? I feel like <laughs> I need to use that to like justify the amount of TV I let my kids watch. And I'll be like, no, no, no. They're just, you know, bolstering their film narrative of storytelling. That's exactly what it is. They're expanding right? the canon. They're expanding the canon. Expanding the canon. Exactly. Thank you. That's even better. <laughs> yes. Expanding the canon. So I'm just going to leave them in front of the TV. <laughs> <laughs> do you have any advice to aspiring authors? other than perhaps watching lots of TV? Uh, Watch as much TV as you can. But (laughs) other than that, I think that one thing that I would say is not to take too much heed of the market, which can be an incredible temptation, especially when like you're first starting out or if you feel as if you don't have connections or if you feel like you don't have like a byline or if you feel like you need to add more to your byline because the market really doesn't know what the market wants until the market wants it for a memorial like a difficulty when it came to like initially drafting it and then editing it was that there weren't too many direct comps that i could pull from and there really weren't very many tonal comps that i could pull from and it wasn't until you know really probably early march of this year that i was convinced that like six people would not read it you know so I would just try to tell the story that you're trying to tell to the best of your ability and really create a world on the page, which is going to be difficult regardless of what your narrative looks like or what you set out to do. But if you're able to achieve that, you know, I think that that's like the biggest boon in a lot of ways. Awesome. Well, great. Thank you, Brian. Thanks for our little chat today. I hope I didn't offend you. No, no, not at all. No, yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for coming on. And I'll be watching Good Morning America to see everything on everything announced. And I'm so excited for you. So it's awesome. Thanks so much, Debbie. Okay. Take care. Likewise. Please take care. Bye. Thanks so much to Faraday Brand for being my sponsor this week. FaradayBrand.com. Enter code Zibby for 25% off. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. 